But Father, we thank you for that sufficiency that we know in Jesus. Uh, every sin atoned for, every sorrow encouraged, every brokenness healed, as that song reminds us, is accomplished in our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that uh, we serve a powerful Jesus, an all-sufficient Jesus, a gracious Jesus, and we look to Him now that we might see even how He acts, how He responds as we would consider how to respond to the evil and the sin that we see in a broken world. So we ask you now for your assistance to understand your word, to, to bring its meaning to our hearts and to empower us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you feel like me, uh, but every day evil around us is overwhelming. There's evil everywhere. Evil even assaults us as our phone dings first thing in the morning with some tragic news story. Evil's everywhere. We hear and see it in wars. We see it in diseases, in abuse, in tragedy, in hardship, in mistreatment. We see evil in broken relationships. We see it in abortion. We see it in sexual perversity. We see evil in violence, in manipulation, in deceit, in abuse of power. We see evil in worldliness, in profanity, in our arrogance, in the way sin is glamorized and righteousness is belittled. When good is called evil and evil is called good, we see evil and sin everywhere. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's wearying. We can think of evil kind of in three categories. There's evil that's out there, you know, evil that we really can't control, that we don't experience other than we hear, at it, hear about it, you know, evil in other countries, evil in wars and other places, evil in disasters. But more close to home, we deal with evil in relationships, don't we? We see evil in our own struggles with neighbors and friends and family members and people that we see as we go about our way. There's evil out there. There's evil in relationships. But maybe the most insidious evil is evil inside of us. That even in those of us that know Christ and have been called into His family, there's residual evil. There's remaining fallenness that you and I fight, even as Christians, every day. The question I want to ask you this morning is, what do we do with that? How do we respond to the onslaught of evil every day? We can be discouraged by evil or despairing. We can grow anxious and fearful. We can get angry and frustrated. We can get jaded and complacent, even sarcastic, saying, oh, here we go again. We can be tempted to retaliate against evil in ungodly ways. The question is, when you are personally confronted with evil, how do you respond? How do I respond? Well, as we come into Romans chapter 12 this morning, 
Paul wants to answer the question, how should Christians respond to evil? And what Paul has in mind is not so much the evil that's out there that doesn't really touch us personally. Paul has in mind the evil in relationships, especially relationships uh, with unbelievers, especially relationships of people that are hostile to Christianity. Remember, this is Rome in the first century. This is the Roman Empire. This is a brand new church in Rome, and there are a lot of people that who do not like Christians and what Christianity represents, and there's persecution going on in the first century. So Paul has in mind, how do we confront evil that we see in relationships, especially hostile relationships with unbelievers? But Paul's going to go a step further, because that, re- that evil in relationships that we so often uh, experience tempts us and provokes the evil within us so that we respond in ungodly ways. And so Paul wants to address this. His goal is to teach us how do Christians fight evil in a uniquely Christian way? How do we as believers in Jesus Christ respond when we're confronted with evil? And I think, man, I don't know how you feel. I I need help like this every day because evil is all around us. It's wearying. It's overwhelming. And we need need God's grace and help to know how do we respond to this. Well, we want to get... Where's my clicker here? I don't have a clicker, guys. Can you just advance it for me? Thank you. I love that. Look at that. I just ask and it happens. That's great. So before we get to chapter 12, we need to get a little bit of a running start because there's a lot that Paul covers in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And no doubt you're familiar with it. Pastor Terry spent a long time unfolding all of this for us and all of its beauty and all of its wonder. And so we recognize that that what Paul's theme is in the book of Romans is, is he is unfolding for us this amazing, precious valuable gospel message that we've been singing about for the last 20 minutes. Um, The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans begins reminding us that all people have God's wrath coming against them because of our sin, because of the evil that we are guilty of. And, And yet God in his kindness and mercy and grace has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to come as our rescue agent who would live and die and rise again all as a means to deal with the evil in our own life, to to forgive it, to make atonement for it, and to reconcile us to God through Christ. And Paul unfolds that uh, in those first chapters of Romans. And and then in the most recent chapters, especially chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's been telling us as Christians, how do we take that, that gospel, this new family life that we have with God, and how do we live that out in the ordinary issues of life? He takes a little bit of a, of a bunny trail in chapters 9, 10, 11 to talk about how Israel fits into the plan of God. And then he comes back to chapter 12, as we just read it a moment ago, chapter 12, verse 1, and we see that word, therefore. In light of the gospel, in light of Christ's work, in light of those of us who have trusted in Christ and have been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, we've been raised to walk a newness of life, what do we do now? And he tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, if you just look back there, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There it is. That's the Christian life in one verse. Now united to Christ, now in his family, we are called to live every day 
as an act of worship. We present everything God gives us, everything in our life, our bodies, our talents, our, our time, our gifts, and we live it all as a worship sacrifice to God. You say, what does that look like practically? Well, he tells us in verse 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, now here's the purpose, okay, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And in a sense, the rest of the chapter is going to show us what does that will of God look like? What does it look like in relationships? What does it look like with other people? What does it look like in the local church? What does it look like when you don't agree? What does it look like with spiritual gifts? And at the very end of chapter 12, he's going to say, what does the will of God, what does offering your life and my life as a sacrifice to God, what does that look like when you and I confront evil? Now, interesting, before we get to that little section at the end of chapter 12, there's a, there's a couple of bookends. Uh, I, I call them bookends. It's, it's a way what Paul's doing as he's writing to say, look, I'm going to put something at the beginning and something at the end so that you understand that everything in the middle is affected by that. And that is found, look with me at verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3. For just as we have, or excuse me, for though the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself then he ought to think. What's that called? Humility. This gospel, this rescue, this being united to Christ, this being adopted into the family of God, this, this message of sin forgiven, justified, ought to make us the most humble people in the world, shouldn't it? Humility is one of the marks, one of the ways we live this out. And then uh, look down at verse 16, we see the same thing. That's the top of the bookend. Here's the other end of the bookend, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So you got humility in verse 3, humility in verse 16. You see the bookends? Because humility is the Christian fuel that guides how we live and breathe and how we do the, how, how we do Christ, the Christian life. And that's especially important as we come now to this section, starting in verse 17, where Paul intends to talk about how we combat evil, how we fight evil. Okay, so remember, as an act of worship to God, in light of the gospel, fueled by Christian humility, let's talk about some strategies on how we fight evil. I want you to see with me in our short time here, six strategies for fighting evil like a Christian. Six strategies for fighting evil like a Christian. You, you should be able to look at your text and figure out all the blanks right now. Don't do that. I'll take you one at a time. But because it's so simple. Paul uses kindergarten language here so that we don't miss it. There, there's nothing complicated. There's nothing super sophisticated. It's very simple. And it's exceedingly hard to do. Okay, so let's look at strategy number one of the six strategies for fighting evil like a Christian, fueled by humility. Let's look at number one, and guys, we'll go ahead and do that. Never fight evil with evil. Never fight evil with evil. Look with me at the beginning of verse 17. Very simple, right? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Paul, right out of the gate, says that this is very simple and yet very hard to do. You don't fight the fire of evil with more fire. You don't retaliate. You, you, you don't return evil for evil. You don't become a part of the evil you're trying to fight. Does that make sense? Now, 
I would admit to you, and maybe you feel like this, that is really, really easy to do. As we see ungodliness, as we see wickedness, as we see sin in all its forms, it is really easy to get frustrated and to get motivated, and all of a sudden we're responding with evil to the evil that we see. Do you struggle with this too? It's so easy to fight evil with evil without even realizing it. I mean, I think of that young dad who gets angry with his children who are being angry with each other. Well, that doesn't work. For one, kids are hypocrite detectors. They can, they can see a hypocrite 10 miles out. And that's a good thing because God calls us as parents to be the examples of self-control and gentle and kindness. But, but parents, you know this. I know that it's so easy to respond to our child's sin with some sort of sinful response. It's so easy as a mom who ends up using manipulation to get her kids to obey because you can do that. It works. Fighting evil with evil works, but it's ungodly, and it ultimately undermines our message. You say, should I go there? I'll go there. How do we address the evil of a corrupt society, the evil of a corrupt culture, the evil of a corrupt government? When we respond in unchristlike ways to that corruption out there, we make ourselves part of the problem. And we undermine the message that is the solution. You say, how does that happen? I think it happens when we lose sight of the goal. Remember, what's the goal? That we would present our whole life as an offering to God. We forget that. We get so caught up in making children obey and worried about what the government's doing and how this is happening that we forget God has intends for us, first and foremost, to not solve all the problems in the world, but to be an offering to Him. That's first and foremost. That's our goal. Um, it's interesting too. He also says back up to verse nine. He says we, th- th- maybe the second reason that, that we lo- that we uh, fight evil with evil and all this, we don't just lose sight of the goal. We lose sight of the war inside of us. Verse nine says, "Let love be without hypocrisy." That's what we do, right? We get angry and unkind at unbelievers as you tell them about the love of Jesus, because we forget that we have to win. Listen, we have to win the war with evil within before we can respond to evil in the war outside. Do you see that? We have to win the war inside before we can engage in the war outside. And when we fail to win the war of evil inside of us, we disqualify ourselves from being able to fight the war of evil that's out there. We can't confront evil out there until with God's grace and help, we first conquer evil in here. Here's a question that... that I ask myself regularly when I'm struggling, uh, I use this um, as an appeal to people in counseling. I, I use this with my kids. Here, here's the question that you and I have to ask. Do I want to be a part of what God is doing for good in the world? Or do I end up becoming part of the problem? If I want to be a part of what God is doing, then I have to win the war within. I don't want to become a part of the problem that he's trying to correct. So we never fight evil with evil. We don't fight the fire of evil with more fire. We need to win the war within and keep the goal in mind. That's the first strategy. Never fight evil 
for evil. Number two, let's look at a second uh, strategy here. We're trying to figure out how do we respond to evil in a uniquely Christian way. Here's one that'll surprise you. Respect what other, others believe is right. Respect what others believe is right. Paul writes in the second half of verse 17 there, respect what is right in the sight of all men. What does he mean by that? Because I don't know about you, but what's right in the sight of all men is wrong a lot of the time, isn't it? Right is wrong and wrong is right. Good is evil, evil is good. So what on earth does Paul mean here? Well, even when we rightly fight against evil, Paul is saying we try to honor and respect what others believe is right. We don't go out of our way to be offensive to other people, is what Paul is saying. We we, we don't look for any toe to step on as we do the work of Jesus. And in fact, what he's saying is we should try to not be offensive. We should try to not be, we should try to be considerate. We should strive to respect what we can. And chances are, even if we're dealing with somebody who has some sin or evil in their life, there's probably areas of good that we can agree with them on. Let's say you're talking to some teenage girl who's contemplating an abortion. And that is a great evil, isn't it? Abortion is a great evil. And we ought to react strongly against the murder of children in the womb. But as you talk to that young lady, you might hear something like this. I know I can't give a child the life that he or she needs. Well, is that a good thing? That's good thinking, isn't it? See, there's something good in the thinking there that we can say, yes, that's right. Now, the solution is not to end the life of your baby, but you're right. We should be thinking about the the, the well-being there of that child. That's something good we can latch on to and and find common ground with. Or or think of maybe you're in the community and and you meet uh, a guy and you find out that he is committing homosexual sin. And as you get to know that person and as you ask questions, you find out that this is a guy that lived in a very abusive home. He had an exceedingly abusive mother. He grew up always feeling like he didn't fit in with his peers. And he's found a connection of relationship and love and trust in a homosexual relationship. And we can say, as much as the homosexual activity is wrong, we can say, you know what? Having trust in a relationship is a good thing. You know, abuse is bad. Having a, a family life of love and security is good. You see what I'm saying? There's common ground there. What, what Paul says is, don't go out of your way to be offensive and step on toes and, and try to be offensive for Jesus. If you can find common ground, that's a good thing. Now, having said that, let me qualify this. We can't respect everything that an unbeliever might think is good, right? We can't do that. We cannot compromise where someone says this is right and the Bible says it's wrong. So there's a limit to what Paul is saying here. In fact, there are many things that are not good we can't compromise on and our allegiance to God and His Word must reign when we interact with unbelievers. However, if we can find some sort of common ground of good, we should honor and respect it. You know, you know this this works in our Christian relationships too. You know, maybe you're having one of those just normal conflicts with your spouse. 
And, you know, she thinks this and you think that. You know, one of the most wonderful things that can get you on the right road to resolving that conflict in a biblical way is to stop looking so much at the one thing that you disagree on and think of probably the dozens of ways you actually do agree. Focus on those things. Focus on the common ground. Come back to the Word of God and say, we love Christ. We know we need to resolve this. We know confession and forgiveness is right. We, we, We know that we're prone to you know, our own misjudgments, that we're not always going to get it right. And finding common ground is a great way to fight evil. It works in unbelieving relationships. It works in believing relationships. And listen to this. It may be that God uses your respectfulness, your consideration to open the ears of unbelievers to hear what you're really saying about the gospel and their need for Jesus. Is that a challenge? (laughs) That is a challenge. We don't fight evil with evil, and we try to respect as much as possible what others believe is right. We don't compromise biblical truth, but we look for common ground. We look for ways to be winsome for Christ, that God might be kind to open their heart to the gospel. Okay, so never fight evil with evil. Respect what others believe is right. We're talking about six strategies for fighting evil like a Christian. Let's look at the third one, third strategy that Paul gives us here. It is this pursue peace as much as possible pursue peace as much as possible look with me at verse 18 if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men be at peace with all men though believers ought to fight evil we must pursue peace with all people as much as we were able to do listen this is so important you get this fighting evil doesn't mean we pursue hostile relationships do you hear that we can love the sinner and hate the sin we can build a relationship sometimes without compromising our values, without compromising our message, without compromising our conviction. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, as much as you can do that, try to have peaceful relationships with with people that need the gospel, with people that are caught up in evil. We need to do that. We fight evil by building peaceful relationships with people with whom we strongly disagree. You say, that's hard. You know what Jesus was known as? He was known as a friend of sinners. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's hanging out with the prostitutes. He's hanging out with the poor. He's hanging out with those rejected of society. You see, brothers and sisters, God is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He's a friend of sinners. He, he's, he would go and build relationships with people in need of the gospel. Remember what he said? You know, people gave him grief about that. What are you doing hanging out with the sinners? And Jesus said, um, when do you go to the doctor? When you're healthy or when you're sick? Right? It's those who are sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. And if we're not building relationships with people that need the gospel, if we're only building relationships with people that are like us and believe like us and act like us, guess what? You've got all these sick people that are afflicted with the cancer of sin and they die and go to judgment eternally because we didn't want to get near them. Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. People that his people, his kind of people, are people who look for ways to build peaceful relationships with other people. Again, not compromising our message, not compromising our values, but to live at peace as much as possible with all men. In fact, back in verse 14, just look back up in chapter 12 there, verse 14, he's going to say this. Bless those who persecute you. We bless them in part by having a peaceful relationship with them. We, we bless them by taking time with them. We bless them by getting to know their families, by, by listening well, not by writing them off. Oh, I know what they believe. They're sinners. <laughs> yeah, so were we. And if not for the grace and mercy of Christ, we'd still be there. Aren't you grateful, guys, that even though we have a diversity of... Everybody's story here is different. That God used someone in your life to get close to your evil and my evil so that we can hear the gospel. That's how we fight evil. We don't fight evil by just judging it and condemning it, although we ought to condemn evil. We fight evil by going to build relationships of people who are struggling with evil because those are the sick people that need the gospel, the medicine of the gospel. Maybe you're married and your parents or your in-laws are not Christians and they don't like a lot of how you're doing your parenting because you're trying to follow Scripture. And they don't have a category for that. It's easy, married couples, when that happens, to just kind of write them off and kind of lay down the law and say, this is the way it's going to be. We can do that. And, And there's a time to hold your conviction. But wouldn't it be better to try as much as possible to build a peaceful relationship with that unbelieving family member or friend, to try not to be as offensive as far as you can, to stay to your convictions, but to move toward them in love and care and peace rather than just rejecting them and backing off. That's hard to do. But it's the right thing to do. Thinking about this verse, I couldn't help but think of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Do you guys know Rosaria? Some of you know her testimony. She was living in a lesbian, homosexual lifestyle with a partner. She was a feminist professor and LGBT advocate for a liberal university. And she had written an article against promise keepers. And all the things she thought was wrong about the promise keepers movement, the Christian men movement of last century. And a local pastor responded to her. A pastor named Ken Smith, maybe a guy you've probably never heard of. And he simply, he and his wife simply invited Rosaria over for a meal, for dinner one night. Listen to Rosaria's testimony of what this pastor and his wife and their hospitality and their pursuing of peace and their initiating of relationship did for her. This is is Rosaria's own testimony. Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen, through these dinners that they would have. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mock me on Gay Pride Day were happy and that I and everyone I love were going to hell as, the clear was, as was the clear blue sky. 
That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. She was writing a, a, another paper about Christianity and evangelicals. But she writes this, something else happened. Ken and his wife, Flo, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting to them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Flo did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jake, cornered me in the kitchen she put her large hand over mine and said this this bible reading is changing you rosaria with tremors i whispered jay what if it is true what if jesus is real and a risen lord what if we are all in trouble and through Ken and Flo's persistent friendship, their hospitality, their love, their respect, their pursuing peace, she eventually trusted Christ and became a believer. The peace that Ken and his wife pursued opened the door for relationship with God, which God used to bring her to the gospel. And I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. We move toward people. We, we honor and respect as much as we can. We build peace without compromising our convictions. We confront evil by moving toward it in relationship. I think that's a great example there to follow. So we, we pursue peace as much as possible. Just a footnote on this. Again, this works in Christian relationships too. This isn't just with unbelievers. When we're trying to work things out in our Christian relationships, what do we do? We pursue peace as much as it depends on us. You know what you and I usually do in relationships? We focus on the one thing she's doing wrong or the one thing he's doing wrong. Instead of saying, how can I pursue peace as much as it depends on me? What can I do to promote peace in this relationship? What can I do to promote peace in this situation? That's how we combat evil in our marriages, in our families, in our, in our conflicts. So never fight evil with evil. Respect what others believe is right. Pursue peace as much as possible. Let me give you a fourth strategy. Never take revenge. Never take revenge because that's God's role, not ours. Look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. Now, now, you can't see it in the English, but Paul's actually arranged this little section here, 17 to 21, in a way that puts the spotlight of the focus on this verse. Verse 19 is the central point of this section. How do we overcome evil, right? Well, look what he says here. He says, believers should never take personal Revenge. That word revenge there means to inflict appropriate penalty for wrong done. 
Never inflict appropriate penalty for wrong done. It means to punish or take vengeance for. And what God is saying here is we never ought to avenge ourselves. We don't do that. That's God's job. Now, a really important footnote for you. There are arenas where God delegates some of that role to certain agencies. Okay? When it is right to bring punishment or to bring protection. The most obvious one is in the next chapter, in chapter 13. Government, as God's agent, according to chapter 13, has authority to punish evildoers and protect what's righteous. But, but understand the difference. Personal retaliation, personal revenge, no, that's God's job. But when a government acts as God's agent insofar as it upholds righteousness and punishes wickedness, that is allowed because they're acting as God's authoritative agent. Ephesians chapter 5 says parents are called to train and if necessary discipline their children that they might grow in wisdom and godliness. That's a way that God gives parents some jurisdiction to train children and to discipline them appropriately in love in that area. The Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets say things like this. Defend the orphan and the widow. Rescue the weak and the helpless. There are jurisdictions in terms of the people of God where we are to go out and defend the helpless and help the vulnerable and and, and work for the rights of the needy and the the downtrodden and the the orphan and those that are struggling, right? So there, there are times where God says, I am giving this agency, government, parents, believers, a, 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 a role in terms of protecting people. Okay, so there is a time for that. That's not what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 12. What he's talking about is when someone slights you or someone slights me and that, that sense of justice wells up in our heart and I want to get them. Because what they did is wrong. Paul says, that's not your job. Never take your own personal revenge. You say, why shouldn't we do that? Well, it it says here, because that's God's job. God is the judge. It's His job to be the judge. It's His job to determine appropriate punishment. In fact, He's going to quote here, you notice uh, in a lot of versions of the Bible there, that that little end sentence, vengeance is mine, I will repay, is in all capital letters. That's because it's a a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, a section of the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there, but, but I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 32, verse... 35 says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Listen to this. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. Why do you and I not need to take revenge? Why do we not retaliate? Answer, because God says it's my job to vindicate my people. You let me take care of that. And I think there's some practical reasons. The the wisdom of God guides that. There's some practical reasons why (laughs) it's not our job to do that. So so when our our sense of justice, that that justice system inside of us reacts and we say, no, that's not right, there's a reason that it's God's job and not ours. Have you noticed this? We don't have all the information a lot of the times, do we? God's omniscient. We don't... Uh, we often misinterpret what's actually going on. You ever done that? You're, you're just so upset. You're so this, right? And you realize that all of your anger, all of your desire for justice was built on the fact you missed it. You misinterpreted. 
You get some additional information. Your, your friend says, oh, actually, this is what I was thinking. And you go, oh, and you feel like an idiot. That's why it's God's job. Only he knows everything. Only he interprets perfectly. The other, <laughs> we often fail to judge the situation with God's judgment. Have you noticed this? We think we're, we're responding in a biblical way. And the reality is we're responding with a justice that is out of alignment with God's sense of justice. We're, we're acting personally where God always acts righteously according to his word. Our judgment often brings mixed motives to our judgment. You know, we say we're getting upset at this person and we're going to retaliate because we believe in justice when the reality is we just want to get them. Our motives aren't pure. And the reality is we often choose to respond in ungodly ways, whereas God's punishment, God's judgment is always holy and is always righteous. So God is the judge. It's his job to judge and inflict appropriate punishment. So you know what that means? We have to be patient. We have to trust God. When that, that radar system inside of us of justice is just screaming at us, this isn't right, this is wrong, someone needs to do something about it, we need to quiet our hearts. Like, do you hear Psalm 37? Do not fret, it only leads to what? Rest in the Lord. Trust Him. Be patient. Let God be God and let Him do it in His timing. It's His job, not ours. You say, how do we do that? That's hard to do, right? When you're feeling injustice, when you feel like you need to retaliate, where do you find the help to respond with patience and trust in God and not retaliate? The answer is you look to the gospel. You look to the gospel. Because that's exactly how God has treated us, hasn't he? God has shown us mercy where we deserve judgment. God has shown patience with us when we deserved instant condemnation. God has shown grace upon grace upon grace upon grace where we only deserve his righteous and holy and eternal condemnation, right? So, brothers and sisters, how do we do this practically? We come back to the gospel. We say, God has treated me like this. God has shown this to me, and I don't deserve it. And now he's asking me to show the same kindness and mercy and grace to this person who wronged me or this person who hurt me. It's only as we look to the gospel of Jesus that that heart work happens. And we're able to withhold retaliation, let God be God, and trust him to take care of it. Number five. Strategy for fighting evil. Number five, provide for your enemy's needs. If our job isn't to retaliate, what is our job? It gets harder. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And and those are basically a loose quote from Proverbs chapter 25. You say, if it's not our job to exact justice, it's not our job to retaliate, it's not our job to make every wrong right, what is our job? Here's our job. Love your enemy. Provide for your enemy. God calls us in very, very practical ways to provide for our enemy's needs. It is possible to love the sinner and hate the sin. In fact, it is possible, it is even commanded that we do good to our enemies. 
That love is not just a theory. It's not just something we agree on in our heads. We practice the love of enemies in practical ways by giving actual, practical, tangible care. That's a challenge, isn't it? How do you love evil people? How do you love difficult people? How do you love sinful people? Well, I would suggest that as we read the Gospels, Jesus shows us how to do that in all sorts of ways. We come back to our Savior. We love, we care, we give. We practice love of enemies in practical ways, giving, providing, and caring in that way. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. What on earth does it mean that we're going to do that and we're going to heap burning coals on their head? That sounds exciting, doesn't it? What on earth does that mean? Well, there's a couple of different possibilities. I think the best possibility as we think about that phrase in terms of how it was used in the Old Testament. Here's what it means. It means that your and my acts of kindness towards sinful people might so overwhelm them, might even increase their sense of guilt and shame for how they're living, that God might bring them to the gospel. You are overcoming evil with good. You are doing good in practical ways, praying that that kindness, like Romans chapter 2 says, would lead us to repentance, lead that person to repentance. So, so here, here's a challenge. You, you got somebody that's really, really difficult. Love them. You got someone who's really, really hard and has hurt you and has, has, has done things to you. Pursue them in love. Pursue them in peace. Look for practical ways to care for them. And as you do that, pray that God might use your good to bring them to repentance in that. Well, there's one final strategy here. We're talking about how do we fight evil like a Christian. Do you notice this? This is not at all what we thought it would be, is it? We think of, you know, onward Christian soldiers, right? And, you know, we're putting on our, our military fatigues and our, our battle uniform. We're going to go fight evil. Brothers and sisters, can you see that what God is calling us to do in our fight against evil is to take off our army uniform and to put on the uniform of a servant? and love, and care, and pursue, and provide. Isn't, isn't that what Jesus did in the incarnation? He left the throne of his father, and he took the form of a bondservant. Why? To live, and die, and rise, to provide life for undeserving, wicked people like me and you. Christian battle is not about putting on our Christian BDUs. It's about learning to be a servant of Christ's love and mercy and grace to undeserving people. Look at this last one. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You say, what does it mean to be overcome by evil? Can I, can I give you j- just a test? How do you know if you're being overcome by evil? If you are afflicted, with anxious worry and fear. You're probably getting overcome by evil. If you are growing jaded and sarcastic and complacent 
about how horrible the world is, you're probably being overcome by evil. If you are discouraged and despairing and finding yourself more hopeless, you're probably being overcome by evil. Uh, if you find yourself regularly responding in ungodly and unchristlike ways, you are definitely being overcome by evil. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't get the wrong idea of what fighting evil looks like. Here, here's how you fight evil. You overcome it with good. The, the, the Christian strategy for overcoming evil is not any of those things. It's not to retreat into some you know, Christian commune. It, it's not to go get politically active. It's not to go out and do this and do that. It's to overcome evil with the good grace of Jesus. We overcome evil with good. We conquer evil with good. We respond with evil toward others with good. We engage in a Christ-enabled offensive of love and righteousness. You say, what does that look like? Give me some practical stuff. What does overcoming evil with good look like? It means we practice forgiveness toward those who hurt us. It means we show kindness toward those who are rude to us. It means we pursue peace with those who are hostile to us. It means we manifest patience to those that are difficult to be around. It means, brothers and sisters, we live the fruit of the Spirit in proactive ways. We launch a military offensive of good against the evil that we see. And we look at the people involved as the prisoners of this war who are in need of rescue. They're not so much the problem, they're the gospel opportunity field. They're the ones in need of grace. They're the one in need of love. They're the one in need of our care. We don't fight evil by neutralizing the threat. We eradicate evil by overwhelming the evil with good. That's how we do it. Can I ask you a hard question? Is there somewhere in your life that you're losing this war? Overcome it. Conquer it. Re-engage it with good. How do you do that? We avoid ungodly responses. We pursue common ground and peace as much as possible. We let God be God, not taking personal vengeance. Instead, we bless the enemy by meeting practical needs and we seek to overcome evil by viewing evil as an opportunity to launch an offensive of good, of God's gospel-enabled grace. Brothers and sisters, if this lost world can't see the good of Jesus in us, where else are they going to see it? Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We, we, we do not respond like this naturally. We don't think like this. We need your spirit to take these truths and reorient how we think and how we live and how we respond. We need the good, kind mercy and grace that you have shown us in Christ to revolutionize our hearts, to win that war within so that we might be conduits of good, living the person and goodness of Jesus to a lost 
and evil world. Father, this is the mission field. This is why we're here. And we confess that so often we, we turn the other way, we, sprung, we, we respond in unhelpful ways. We become part of the evil that we bemoan. And so I pray that with the grace and assistance of Jesus, empowered by your Holy Spirit, you would make us a church that overcomes evil with good by moving towards sinners in need of the gospel. Father, will you work in us? We need your grace. For your honor and glory we pray. In Christ's name, amen.